welcome to the Cell Culture Dish podcast, Optimizing Protein Expression and Purification Using Mass Spectrometry Analysis. I'm Brandi Sargent, editor of the Cell Culture Dish. For our panel discussion today, we will talk with Dr. Mark Abbott, Dr. Mark Elvin, and Rachel Rowlandson, all with Peak Proteins. Thank you for joining us today. We're really excited to have a panel from Peak Proteins here today, and I'd like to ask the panel members if they would introduce themselves. Hi, I'm Mark Abbott. I'm the founder and chief executive officer of Peak Proteins. Hi, I'm Rachel Rowlandson. I'm a specialist in protein mass spectrometry at Peak Proteins. Hi, I'm Mark Elvin. I'm a principal scientist in charge of the cell science and cell expression team at Peak Proteins. Thank you all for being here today. I'd like to start by asking if you could describe the work that you're doing at Peak Proteins and how this helps the customers that you work with. Hi, I'll perhaps take that one. It's probably helpful to describe the types of organization that we work with to help explain that. So basically, we work with businesses and organizations that are involved in the discovery of new medicines. And these can be either small molecule medicines or biologics, or vaccines. Basically, the uh, role that we play is to provide engineered recombinant proteins. These are as research reagents uh, that support drug screening uh, and also structural biology, particularly using X-ray crystallography. With respect to the screening, many types of different screening rely on specifically designed proteins in order to run, uh, and that can be a high-throughput screen of several million compounds or biophysical methods such as surface plasma resonance of fewer compounds. But the proteins that go into those screens need to be very specifically tailored and designed for the end use. For the medicinal chemist involved in drug discovery, being able to actually see in detail the structure of the target protein that they're trying to hit uh, is fantastic information to help them design very specifically uh, molecules that are going to be more selective or more potent. Uh, And we generate this information using X-ray crystallography of highly purified proteins. Mark, would you be able to tell us what are some of the most common protein challenges that you come across? So um, the the way I like to think about this is that proteins are a bit like human beings. Uh, We're all individuals as human beings and proteins equally are very individual things. You can't treat them all the same. Proteins have to be treated very, very differently in order to get a protein at the end of a process that is actually useful. So the way we, um, even before we, Uh, lift up a pipette and start doing some experimentation in the lab, we put a huge amount of effort into thinking about how best to design it, how we might purify it, uh, and then once we have purified it, how we might characterise it. And because we work with such a vast diversity of proteins, uh, we have to use a huge toolbox, if you like, of different methodologies to do that. And the types of different proteins we work with, so it can vary from uh, very unstable uh, membrane proteins to proteins that are only functional when they're in complexes with 
one if it's a simple complex, but sometimes many, many different proteins in a complex. Uh, and sometimes we can work with very flexible, unstable enzymes. Sometimes we work with very stable proteins as well. And the sorts of challenges that we get is, uh, I mean, I guess the classic one is that uh, we simply don't get much expression. Uh, so the expression is very, very poor. And that can be a problem with the rate at which the protein folds up. It may be that the protein is inherently physically unstable, or it may be that it's very sensitive to being proteolytically cleaved by proteases. So those are some of the common challenges that we get. And if I can be slightly provocative, because I'm conscious that this audience is a cell culture audience, but if I can be slightly provocative, the cell host and uh, how the cell is grown is only part of a process. And I do think it's very important to consider the whole process, which obviously includes the design of the protein, obviously the factor as well, and then how the protein is to be purified. So I would encourage people to consider not just the cell side of things, but also the whole process. That's a great point. As you mentioned, every protein is different and requires a different level of complexity for expression and also for culture and purification. So I think that that makes a lot of sense. Along with that is, of course, the culture system involved. Would you be able to describe the culture systems you use to express proteins and the way in which you use them? Yes, so there are, there are several types of expression systems that can be used for protein production, and these include mammalian cells, insect cells, bacteria, plant, yeast, and even now cell-free expression systems. And at Peak Proteins, we use um, three of these different systems to express the various proteins that, that our clients approach us to make. So specifically, we use a transient HEC-293 uh, mammalian suspension expression system, also a baculovirus infected insect cell expression system, and various E. coli expression host strains. And each system offers unique advantages and disadvantages over the other ones. But first, I'd like to say, like Mike said, it's very important to choose the, the right system for your protein and where it's going to be expressed. So if you're looking for a simple protein, which doesn't require many or much post-translational modifications or PTMs, then it would be better to probably go for expression in an E. coli-based system. This would have the, the major advantage of being cheaper as the growth medium we use uh, for these growers is generally inexpensive and can often be made in-house. Also at peak, we routinely use T7-based expression vector systems to maximise soluble expression. And we can also refold proteins from E. coli, which are derived from inclusion bodies if this is required. However, if you're looking at expressing the much more complex protein, then you would probably want to produce them in, in mammalian systems such as HEC-293 or even GEO cells. And in these systems, protein folding is much more efficient and the protein secretion into the surrounding growth media is very good, making the purification process for, uh, for the protein scientists much, much simpler, especially if this is in con used in conjunction with affinity tags and solubility tags. The main reason that you would want to use mammalian cells to express your protein of interest is because of the complex post-translational modifications that are able to be formed on the proteins. However, the main cost is cell culture media, and this is generally more expensive for mammalian systems. And there's also a heavy reliance on CO2 gas incubators to grow these types of cell lines. 
And at peak proteins, we assess expression of proteins in a transient HEC293 suspension system after the transfection of cells with plasmids harboring the gene of interest, which can then be scaled up to a reasonable level. And we routinely work with secreted and intracellular proteins, as well as many difficult to express proteins. We also have a um, use of an insect cell expression system, and this is now becoming a lot more popular as well. And at peak, we use a flashback baculovirus in infected insect cell system for expression secreted intracellular and membrane proteins. And this baculovirus-based system offers advantages again, such as the correct uh, post-translational modifications, although these aren't as complex as what you find for the mammalian systems and scalability like the hex. But like mammalian systems, the growth media costs are higher relative to bacterial expression systems. Mark had mentioned a toolkit to be able to uh, work with all these different proteins. And I wanted to ask a question about one of those tools. How does mass spec help you overcome the challenges of expressing so many and such a diversity of proteins? Uh, Rachel, would you be able to answer that? Yes, so we currently have a Cyx Xion LC coupled to an X500B mass spectrometer, which is an ideal system to deliver fast results, assisting with the challenges of protein expression. The system seamlessly switches between intact mass and peptide mapping analysis. Intact mass LCMS is via a C4 column, and the run times are routinely only five minutes. And the peptide mapping LC-MSMS uses a C18 column with run times around 10 minutes. Both techniques use a reverse phase LC and the column oven switches between the two depending on the method selected. This system enables us to work out exactly what protein we have or have not made in a way that SDS Page or Western Blots cannot alone do. It is much more definitive. It is primarily an in-process check that affects the decisions we make on expression systems and how we use them and how we purify the proteins. Specifically, I wanted to cover a few areas of work with LCMS. If you wouldn't mind sharing with listeners how you've used it in the following areas. Um, I'll start with protein characterization. Okay, um, so one of the things that uh, Mark mentioned, the other Mark mentioned a little bit earlier, was uh, post-translational modifications. So one of the most common post-translational modifications for secreted proteins is glycosylation. And there are two forms, or primarily two forms of glycosylation on secreted proteins. So these are uh, N-linked glycosylation, uh, to asparagine residues and O-link glycosylation to threonine and serine residues. So glycosylation in, is uh, a real problem for X-ray crystallography. There's a couple of reasons for this. Uh, one of these is because the uh, oligosaccharide side chains tend to be quite flexible uh, and, and that can make it difficult to form ordered crystalline arrays. The second reason is that glycosylation can be very heterogeneous, both in terms of whether a putative uh, glycosylation site is used or not, uh, but also the exact uh, nature of the oligosaccharide that is uh, found at any one particular site. So, for example, a particular asparagine may be glycosylated with many, many different N-linked structures. 
So we use the mass spectrometer to help us understand glycosylation uh, much better. Uh, and we recently had an example of a protein that we knew uh, or, or we didn't know to start with whether it was going to be glycosylated or not. And it was only when we put it in the mass spectrometer that we realised that uh, it was N-glycosylated, but only a fraction of a protein was N-glycosylated. So that was heterogeneous to start with. So we needed to get rid of that. And once we got rid of that particular asparagine and mutated it out, we then found out that it was O-glycosylated as well. And to cut a long story short, it was actually uh, heterogeneously O-glycosylated as well at uh, different threonine uh, residues. And so we uh, had to go through a series of uh, mutagenesis studies to actually force the O-link glycosylation onto a, just a single uh, threonine. Uh, and, w- and when we did that, we were then able to successfully crystallize the protein. So that's just one example of one protein where we use mass spectrometry to analyze in detail glycosylation. Actually, I could probably tell you another 20, 30, 40, even 50 different glycosylated proteins where we've looked at the glycosylation in um, sometimes not a lot of detail, but just to give us an understanding of exactly what's going on with a protein and how we might think about how best to express and purify it. That's so interesting and goes back to what you were talking about with really under truly understanding the proteins that you're working with and the tools that you have in order to do that. What about troubleshooting difficult purifications? How have you been able to use LCMS to do that? Okay, so I've got a beautiful example from a recent piece of work that we were doing where we were uh, refolding a disulfide-bonded heterodimer. So this was a protein that was expressed in E. coli as inclusion bodies, two separate chains that were both denatured separately in 8-mole urea and then refolded under conditions that allowed the correct disulfide, or we hope, the correct disulfide bonds to reform. Once the protein was uh, refolded, it was then purified using a couple of different chromatography sets. Uh, And then finally, it was analysed on uh, reducing and non-reducing gels. And what we observed on the non-reducing gel was that there were two bands on a Kumasi stain gel, uh, whereas there was just a single band on a reducing Kumasi gel. So we asked the sort of question, why? Uh, And basically, Rachel was able to definitively identify that there were two different species because the disulfide bonds had got a little bit mixed up. So I think there were uh, six cysteines with three disulfide bonds and they were uh, meant to form in a particular order. Uh, And two of the cysteines and a single disulfide bond uh, had got jumbled up for reasons that we don't fully understand. We think we know what we would do now to overcome that problem, but without the mass spectrometry to really identify what the problem was, uh, we would have never been in a position to be able to sort that out. And again, that's a, that's just one example, but there are so many more examples that I could give you where the mass spec really helps us understand what's going on with a difficult purification. 
That's a great example. One of the things we talk about a lot in our publication is in-process modifications and in-process optimization. What have you been able to discover with respect to in-process modifications? Okay, so um, uh, a good example here that speaks to that is uh, I'm sure anybody who's expressed and purified proteins has been in this position is that uh, you purify your protein and it's not squeaky, squeaky clean. Uh, There are contaminating bands in there uh, and, and you don't know what they are. And it's really important. It's important for, obviously, if you're generating a biological, it's absolutely critical to know what they are. But for us, it's equally important to know uh, and understand what they are, irrespective of whether it's going into a screen or into uh, crystallization experiments. So what we do to try and solve this problem is uh, use peptide mapping of the band so we can uh, run an SDS page gel, uh, stain it with Kumasi and then cut that band out, fragment it with trypsin and or chymotrypsin uh, and then identify the peptides uh, resulting from that in the way that Rachel described earlier. Uh, And we're then able to uh, identify definitively whether that particular band is, uh, for example, a host cell protein. So has it come from E. coli? Has it uh, come from baculovirus insect cells? Or what can be more frustrating for us, actually, is if it's a proteolytic um, product. So the particular protein is starting to fragment during the purification. And, you know, we have seen that before. I I guess another example, really, of in-process modifications is where we're really not seeing good expression. Um, And sometimes after the first affinity step, rather than seeing a nice sort of pure band that's perhaps 80, 90 percent pure, we can be left looking at a gel which has got perhaps 20, 30, 40 proteins on there. uh, And you're really not sure whether the protein that we're looking at Uh, is on there at all so has it been expressed and purified at all Um, so I mean a question that I've got sort of well it's poor but how poor is poor if if our protein is there it may be possible to actually extract it go through a significant purification process with multiple steps and actually get half a milligram to a milligram of protein and that may be enough to actually do a huge amount of work in early drug discovery but we need to know that we're not just chasing shadows and we need to know for definite that the protein is there and that's when the mass spec comes in because it's able to definitively say whether or not our protein is there. You know, it's so interesting hearing these examples, the work that you do and and all of the information that you have to learn uh, about these different proteins uh, and different kinds of of proteins you see with your work and the mysteries that you have to solve. I think it is really uh, makes this conversation uh, so interesting. Probably mystery-wise, complex proteins can be very challenging. Uh, What has been your experience working with complex proteins and the use of LCMS? I guess there's two types that it might be helpful to talk about. So in, in terms of complex proteins, probably membrane proteins are up there in terms of being the most complex in terms of their, they tend to be very, very unstable 
uh, and therefore very difficult to express. They're also frequently, um, I mean, obviously they rely upon a lipid bilayer, um, but they frequently are part of a complex with other proteins as well. So for us, LCMS is really important in order to, uh, it, the biggest reason is when uh, we are purifying it, it's often not very pure and sometimes we're doubtful as to whether we have in fact managed to purify it at all. Again, as I sort of said previously, being able to use LCMSMS to definitively identify that it is the membrane protein that we're interested in is really, really important. Sometimes, as I think I've stated before, we do actually uh, go to express protein complexes and these can be sort of three, four proteins, for example, that are part of a multi-protein complex. And again, um, mass spectrometry uh, and the ability of mass spectrometry to definitively identify those different proteins in that complex uh, is really, really valuable to us. I had recently covered a presentation on the use of Cyax's Q-trap. In the presentation, they had used uh, this LCMS system to analyze spent media metabolites in CHO cells and uh, the information that would be able to be gained using this approach. Have you used mass spec at all to improve the growth or productivity of your culture or for process optimization? So at Peak Proteins, we haven't as yet used mass spec to be able to improve the growth or productivity of the three different expression systems that we use are indeed for process optimization. However, in my previous position as an academic at the University of Manchester, we used metabolomics to improve the expression of recombinant proteins uh, from CHO cells by adding cell-specific media and feeds to improve uh, the specific productivity of these cells. So it's true that insights into the metabolome can offer a real powerful indication of what we call cellular status or cellular health, which can then provide important information on the molecular events that determine, regulate or limit cell-specific functions, such as uh, cell growth and or recombinant protein production. So if we look back to roughly the early 2000s, then historically, mass-spec-based metabolomics methods have been utilised to improve the bioprocessing capacity of mammalian cells. And these very large data sets have been subsequently used to rationalise the design and improvement of uh, chemically defined media, but also to optimise cell line-specific feeding regimes in order to boost productivity and to improve product quality. To define metabolic markers of high productivity, and more recently to define targets for specific cell line engineering via uh, CRISPR technology. All of these things have allowed for mammalian cells, and especially chill cells, to produce more and more recombinant protein into the grams per litre range, instead of the usual microgram or milligram range. However, much less is known about the metabolome of the various recombinant bacular virus expressed in insect cell lines. But hopefully with more and more uh, metabolomic studies being performed as a matter of routine in these systems, and hopefully we'll see an improvement in the bioprocessing capability of this system in the very near future. And this is something I'm very interested in following up here at PEAK in order to increase the bioprocessing capabilities of our own insect cell expression system, as well as our um, HEC and E. coli systems as well. It was a very interesting process that they used and seemed to be very valuable in that process. I wanted to uh, go back to talking a little bit about culture conditions. When and how do you use LCMS to change culture conditions? So we've got a great example of this uh, just over the last couple of weeks. So we were trying to express a particular construct in E. coli 
And uh, it was pretty obvious from an STS page gel alone that uh, the recombinant protein was primarily insoluble. We were able to use LCMS to definitively identify a particular band as uh, insoluble fraction as the protein that we were interested in. Um, when we took the soluble fraction and tried to start doing some purification, we ended up with a bit of a mess, but there might have been a way forward. We used LCMS to see whether we could see any of the protein of interest uh, after affinity purification, and we couldn't. So it was, a, in a very negative sense, it was pretty much obvious that actually moving forward with that construct in that cell line was not possible. So rather than changing cell culture conditions, I think I'd suggest that actually changing the cell host is a much better way forward. Um, so with that particular construct, we will be taking that forward in baculovirus insect cells rather than E. coli. And, and that's the fairly common thing to do. But actually having the definitive information from LCMS that there really was no way forward whatsoever in E. coli is really, really helpful. Another similar sort of example is that uh, in a similar sort of setting where a particular protein is predominantly insoluble, sometimes uh, it is possible to see that you can get a limited amount of solubility. We had an example a couple of years ago where there was limited solubility that you could start to purify it out. You could identify it using LCMS. What we then did was to reduce the temperature of the E. coli culture even further. So it had started off at 18 degrees, and we actually did the expression with that particular protein in the end at uh, 12 degrees, where growth was pretty minimal. But actually, it improved the solubility. It probably doubled the solubility, and that made it getting a few milligrams at the end of the study uh, feasible, whereas without that, it would have been really, really difficult. Another example, I guess, is, um, and, and this overlaps with something that I uh, was mentioning earlier, is that we have used LCMS to look at uh, a protein that is proteolytically sensitive. So we took a normal sort of, this, this was actually an insect cell express protein where we normally uh, would harvest after 48 hours. Uh, when we did that, it was obvious that the protein was fragmenting into bits and we actually ended up harvesting at 36 hours. Uh, and under those conditions, uh, there was much less proteolysis occurring and the proteolytic fragmentation was very clearly observed via LCMS. So it enabled us then to change. I mean, it's not so much the cell culture conditions as the time of harvest. That's a great point. One of the issues I think sometimes we look a lot at is how do we fix the culture, cell culture, the way in which the cells are cultured. But I think that's an excellent point around really looking at if that's the right expression system and how much improvement can be had just by changing that. I wanted to switch gears a little bit and talk about practical day-to-day -day use, um, which will be something that listeners will be interested in. Um, and I wanted to ask about how uh, your LCMS system has fit into your process workflow and what was implementation of the system like? So in terms of process workflow, uh, we basically use it throughout the whole process. So 
from the first column to check on whether we have actually started to purify the protein that we're interested in, uh, right through to a final QC check before we ship a protein out or alternatively put it into crystallization trials. So we'll use the mass spec right throughout the whole process. And particularly in the earlier stages of developing a process, it's a problem-solving tool for us to help us really identify the nature of the problem that we're uh, working with. In terms of implementation, so uh, actually getting the equipment set up that was pretty straightforward. The, the two modes that uh, the system operates under, uh, so that's for doing both intact masses and peptide mapping. So the intact mass uh, analysis, so all the protein scientists in the lab, they're able to do that themselves. Uh, so they can uh, run a purification They'll have some samples, look and see what it's like on a gel, STS page gel, and they can then put their sample, get an intact mass, and it can quickly give them uh, a mass and therefore some reassurance, hopefully, that, that they are purifying the protein that they're interested in. Rachel runs most of the peptide mapping, LCM, SMS, uh, and that's on a a little bit more specialized, uh, which is why Rachel's doing it as the mass spec expert. I'd like to close just by asking for advice. What advice would you have for companies that are considering adding an LCMS system to their lab? So I think from the uh, examples that uh, we've used and from um, that I think exemplify the way in which we use it, uh, so, so in our environment, where we're making probably hundreds of different proteins uh, every single year uh, using different expression systems, many different methods, uh, and the proteins, as we said, are just hugely, hugely diverse, it's uh, an invaluable tool in terms of helping to troubleshoot, to problem solve, as well as a final QC. Um, so I think sometimes people perhaps perceive mass spec as being a final QC, but I think it's much, much more than that. And so, yeah, I think it's uh, it, it's an invaluable part of the toolkit of any sort of protein biochemistry, protein structural biology laboratory. That's a great point, because I think you're right. We do think about it more in the arena of QC but there's just so much more that can be done with it. And it's really been great to talk to protein experts on how it's being used and get our listeners and others uh, thinking about using it in new ways. So I really appreciate your time today and your insight that you've shared uh, on the use of mass spec. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Cell Culture Dish podcast. To listen to other podcasts related to the discovery, development, and manufacture of biologics, please visit us at www.cellculturedish.com. And for downstream process topics, www.downstreamcolumn.com. <laughs>